Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. Here at Promo Kitchen, we are proud to be partners with and members of PPAI, one of today's sponsors of this broadcast with Gene Geiger. Today's podcast is brought to you by Promotional Products Workweek, which is May the 14th to the 18th this year. Promotional Products Workweek is an industry-wide celebration dedicated to increasing awareness, building your business, and uniting our entire industry with one mission, one purpose, and one voice. So May the 14th to the 18th, get together with your team, your peers, and your community to meet and greet, serve your community, advocate for the industry, and celebrate your customers and clients during Promotional Products Work Week. For more information, check out ppai.org slash events. This podcast has also been brought to you by our good friends at Sanmar. Sanmar believes in the power of promotional products. Since 1971, this family-owned apparel supplier has been dedicated to passionately serving customers through trusted brands like Port Authority, Nike Golf, OGO, District, District Made, and Sport Tech. You can check them out online at sanmar.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble-rousers, freaks, and geeks who are shaking up the $21 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of CommonSkew, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome the great Gene Geiger to the podcast. Gene was last on the Thank you, Mark. I'm wondering, am I a freak or a geek or a rabble-rouser? I'm I'm, I'm, I guess I must be one of those somewhere, somehow. You, you are a, a bizarre hybrid of all three, I think. <laughs> all right, continue on. <laughs> I, I appreciate the clarification. So Gene was last on the program in January 2015. And since then, he's been busy making headlines by expanding Geiger's presence beyond the U.S., Specifically, just this past week, Gene announced that Geiger was merging with the UK's largest family-owned distributor, BTC Group. I wanted to sit down with Gene to unpack what this merger means for Geiger and the industry overall. We have seen a few global merger and acquisition announcements in the last few years, and I think that we are only seeing the beginning of an interesting trend as companies in the promotional products industries ready themselves for the demands of a global customer base. I also wanted to speak with Gene about the process he follows for making acquisitions work, given the challenges of integrating different company cultures and systems. I always love speaking with Gene as he's such a humble guy, despite leading one of the largest and most influential companies in the industry. Gene, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Mark. 
And I love the fact that, you know, you're like this three-headed beast, the freak, geek, and rabble-rousers. So I think you're actually the only one to be introduced as that. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be introduced that way. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we jump right into this exciting news? I want you to tell me a little bit more about the BTC group. Maybe give me a sense of their size or their positioning, service offering, the niche that they serve. Give us some color about the BTC group. Well, I think the first thing, Mark, to be said is that they're a family-owned and managed company. They're the largest one in the UK. And our company is a family-owned and managed distributor as well. And we're probably the largest one in the US. I don't want to talk about you know their sales or how much money we paid. I don't think that's a good idea. But they're a medium-sized firm by US standards. They're a pretty good-sized company, but they're not our size at all. Right. They do have 55 employees, and they provide a full service offering, much like we do. They, in fact, more than we do, they will do things for their customers like embroidery, screen printing, engraving. They have a kitting capability. They do fulfillment. They've got a web design team. So they do a whole lot of things in support of large and small customers. I think the important thing for us to say is that they're a strong company as they stand. They've got some very skilled people. In some respects, we think they've got some better talent in some areas than we do. And they're good people. They're really good people. So in doing this, we're joining up with and acquiring a company that is doing a good job rather than our opening up an office, a one-room office somewhere and having a phone number and an address and starting from scratch. We got something to work with. Right. So can you tell me about how the acquisition came about? Well, because of the customers that we are serving and want to serve, we have seen a need for us to gear up to be able to help customers which have global needs, a global footprint. We already have had a lot of global experience because we're members of an organization called WAGE which is short for World Advertising Gift Exchange. Yep. And my colleague, Joanne Lance, has been president of that for several years and now is secretary treasurer of it. And so this organization has 20 or so firms from 20 or so different countries. And BTC has been a member of that group. We've worked with them on some projects successfully and happily. And we learned that they're really good to work with, good people. And so we got wind or we talked somehow over drinks somewhere with the owners about their eventually wanting to sell. And we said, well, I'll tell you what, when that time comes, we'd love to talk to you. Right. The time came and we talked to them. Right. You made mention in one of the news articles, Gene, that being able to serve a global customer is a very different thing when, as you say, you've got a friend or maybe a a casual partner in another country as opposed to an actual office. How do you now see your ability to effectively service a global company now that you can say you actually have feet on the ground in an actual office versus some kind of strategic partnership? Well, there's so much to be said for that. But for example, if we were working with a friendly company and we were not integrated as an organization, we'd probably say to them, we'll tell you what, you do this over there we'll do this over here right. and let's do a good job. Well, that means that the information systems wouldn't be integrated. Yep. 
you wouldn't be able to report out to your customers what's going on in a lot of places or would take a lot of work. You don't have a singular e-commerce system. You don't have as much control over clarifying the product offerings. And on top of that, if something goes bad, and we had a situation oh, a year, year and a half ago where we farmed out some work to another organization and they didn't follow the right protocols and they did an inadequate job and we've had to make some changes. So you do the best you can and if it's a joint venture, fine, but it is better to say to a customer, it's not just a joint venture we have got going over there in the UK. We want to say it's our company and our people and we're working together for the common good to help you in North America and in the EU and the United Kingdom. And so having your own people means you just have a better service offering, it seems to me. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to argue with that at all. It's the same thing that we see on the supplier side, Gene, where you have suppliers that will promote that they own their own factory in Asia, as opposed to it being a joint venture or something that's done through, let's say, a, a sourcing partner. And clearly, you're going to feel more confident working with a supplier that has their own people than an organization where there's less accountability. On the other hand, Mark, let's say you've got a customer that needs to do business in the Middle East or in South Africa or someplace like or Brazil, yep. and it may not be practical to own an office or it may not be too far down the road. In that case, you're just going to have to do the best you can yep. and pull together the right resources. But ideally, in the major markets, certainly in Europe and United Kingdom, Canada, yep. uh, Australia, and a few other places around the world, you would ultimately like to be able to have your own teams doing things for those companies that want to span the globe like that. Right. Is this your first acquisition outside the US, Gene? This is. As I said, or as we just implied, we've done some joint venture things and some project things, but this is the first one for us. And the first one is daunting because there's a lot of things you don't know. Right. And maybe we need to revisit this in a year or so, but I'm curious to see, based on the, I imagine the success of this, whether you start to look at other countries, whether you start to explore other acquisition opportunities in other countries that you might not have explored in the past because you would have been more comfortable doing the joint venture thing. I think that's an interesting observation, and, and I think it all depends on how well we do it. If this thing goes well and we don't screw it up and we learn a bunch of things, clearly we're going to say, how can we do this again in some subsequent markets that are important to us? Yeah. If we screw it up and we've got to say, whoops, we were not as smart as we thought we were, then we're going to think twice. But ideally, this becomes a springboard to doing things elsewhere. Right. But you've got to find the right people. Yeah. Just having a place somewhere is not good enough. You better be partnering up with the people that you trust, that you can work with effectively, that are collegial, collaborative. And right now, based on what we've done for several years, and especially the last few months, the people at BTC are superb people to talk with and work with and to work out problems with. Right. Well, that's so important. I mean, at the end of the day, it's people in process. And if you don't have that particular, the people side, then you're right. <laughs> it doesn't matter if the numbers look great, the deal's <laughs> going to blow up in a you know, a few months. And that could yeah. have huge, huge impact on your business. I'm curious, Gene, as you look out 
in your crystal ball over the next three to five years at Geiger's sales growth, do you see your ability to grow sales faster outside the U.S. than in the U.S.? Wow, that's an interesting point. I guess in a maybe in a general sense, in this way, the U.S. market has how many twenty thousand odd distributors selling product, and you've got some extremely competent firms that are selling over the internet. Yep. We got the prospects today of Amazon and Walmart showing up. They're here both working this industry. And so if you want to talk about what used to be called or what was called in a book some time ago, a blue ocean, well, there are, in my opinion, there is no single distributor firm that has got the whole globe thing figured out. There are several firms that have desires to do so and have the wherewithal over time to do it. But it's complex. It's difficult. Finding the right people, the right partners are hard. And so if you think about this and you think that there are some significant number of global companies that want this kind of service and support, well, there are relatively few firms they can turn to Mm. or will be able to turn to. And I'm just hoping that we can continue to make progress and we can be one of those companies that can do a really good job. And there are not going to be that many firms that are going to be able to service global companies in the way that in general they want to be served. Right. Maybe one of the things I was thinking about that led to that question is that I think there's a school of thought out there that looks at sales growth outside of one's local market. And then there's another school of thought that says our local market or country, in this case, we're talking about the US, has got so much opportunity within it. And our share of that market is relatively small. Why distract ourselves going outside the US when there's still so much opportunity within the US? So I think that that's where I was asking that question because Geiger is such a large company that I was wondering whether you're starting to see some saturation within the US market that is now, I wouldn't say forcing you to look outside, but that it's almost like the next frontier for you, whereas other distributors a little bit smaller still have ample opportunity within the US. Well, Mark, there's two or three things to be said. Number one, this is not the only thing we're doing. And we've got three basic business units. And so this is one. And when it comes to growth, part of the benefit of having this global capability is being able to land a program in the first place with a whole lot of US business. So a company, I I won't even name a name, but a large company is going to go out and ask for three or four firms to bid on this three-year program or whatever it is. And if you say, well, we can't do anything in Canada, we can't do anything in Europe, but we can do a good job in the United States, they would say, well, that's really great, but I'm sorry, we need to do things elsewhere. So in that case, you lose the opportunity for the U.S. business as well as the international business. As it relates to things changing and falling off, it is clear that the big web firms, either the ones that are directly in our industry, the four imprints, or the ones that are nibbling on the edges, Custom Inc. or Zazzle or those guys, clearly when you can, when a buyer can go on Google and type in the word pen, they're going to be seduced to going in a direction different 
than when they couldn't figure out where to get a pen and they had to turn to the salesperson, our salesperson maybe, who showed up or called every three or four weeks. In fact, most people are so busy, they don't want to wait to talk to anybody. So on the drop ship, a random order kind of basis, the occasional need kind of customer, that business is clearly vulnerable to shifting to companies that are doing things well online. And we're trying to cover that with another part of our business. And God knows where all of this stuff plays out, but the international thing is one aspect of what we are trying to do where I think we can be good as anybody and maybe better than most. Yes. And it's clear that you're tapping into a trend that we have seen, a trend that I think started a few years ago. I mean, you look at what BDA has done, they've been quite aggressive in expanding outside the US. I think that there were two acquisitions that they made an announcement about, I think, last year. You've got the Brand Edition folks. I think Brand Edition is actually headquartered in the UK, and they've gone in and they've made acquisitions in the US and beyond. So clearly, we're seeing something that's really interesting here. I definitely think that we are at the beginning rather than the end of this trend. Would you agree with that? I cannot agree more. The world is smaller and smaller because of electronic communications and ordering systems and things, you can do things that you couldn't do before. And big companies want to control their brand and they want to control how they spend money and they want to know what they're doing. And they don't like having everybody in every little country doing something different. And so if it's possible for them to get their arms around their promotional spend, they're going to give it the try. And so I don't see why it's not going to continue. And that means companies like ours are going to chase that capability so that we can be in a position to get some business from firms like that. Right. So I want to switch gears a bit here, Gene, and I want to talk about how you buy companies and specifically the due diligence process. Is that something that you might be able to highlight a little bit in terms of how Geiger goes about purchasing companies? Sure. Although I'm not the guy that does the work, it's some other people that do it, but I've got a basic sense of it all. First of all, since we don't own any companies or have not owned any companies in the UK before, and since we haven't gone outside of the US, we are not familiar with their accounting rules or their tax laws or their employment laws or other things. So we decided we were going to have to spend a lot more money than we normally do. And we hired the international accounting firm BDO and had them help us out. We also hired a local law firm over there. If we tried to do this without that sort of help, we would have either not completed the deal or screwed it up in some fashion or other. So we basically, for any acquisition, you go to the company and in one way or another, ask for and get information about their financials, let's say. You know, you ask for their tax returns or whatever the equivalent is in the UK for a number of years. And then you ask for a bunch of other information. Who are the people? What do they do? Who does what? Who reports to who? And so you get a pile of information. And from that, you have a team. We have a team composed of finance people, sales marketing people, technology people. And you sort of see what you got. And you try to make sure that what you were told is what your due diligence team finds and where there are differences. Well, how come? 
And when you look into the technology, or someone says, well, we do this and this and this, somebody has to look and say, well, how does that work and how good is it? And think about how do we integrate our systems and so on. So once you've got a sense of what you've got, once you reconcile the differences or clarify things or just say to the other side, oops, you goofed up on this, you, you were wrong, whatever it is, once you feel like you've got your hands around it and there isn't going to be any big surprises popping up, then you start working on legal documents and right. writing those things up. And they've got to be written up in the language and the laws of the country you're going to. This is not like a, a lawyer in Maine writing this stuff up. We're going to own a company in the UK. Right. And then you start talking about, okay, how are we going to work together? And right. who's going to do what? What is the organizational structure? Who's going to do what? Who's going to report to whom? And so on. And so I guess a lot of this I would just say is, and you being a Canadian who has floated around south of the border plenty, you've got to be really clear and understanding that every country has different culture and customs and market conditions. And we Americans who tend to think we're just better than everybody else have to be humble and listening and not going in to a company and saying, okay, here's how you're going to do it, blah, 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 when it may be that that's a bad thing for that marketplace. And frankly, you don't want to turn off people. We're now joining two teams and we're going to work together and we're going to share best practices and hopefully we'll make each other better because we're listening to each other. Right. Now, I know this is your first acquisition in another country, but you have also had experience acquiring companies within the US in the past. That's correct, right? Yes. So I'm interested in anything that you've learned in the last or over the last many years and last several acquisitions that you've made, how it is that you effectively integrate companies into the Geiger company culture without killing the company's culture that you just purchased, but at the same time, not impacting the overall Geiger company culture. Like, How do you do that? Sometimes we've done it well, and sometimes we've done it poorly. Thank you for being honest. I mean, really, we've we screwed <laughs> some things up. Clearly, you've got to understand the other company and the intentions of the owner. Sometimes the owner wants to leave and sometimes the owner wants to stay. But whatever yeah. it is, you really have to get a feel for the culture, the values, how the other company works. And you want to have companies that bring something new to your organization and improve it, bring some new energy. On the other hand, if a company is too different, then your culture is going to reject them. Right. And everybody that comes on board, let me restate that, many people that join a company like ours think that, oh, well, we want all the benefits and the good things you have, but we can't change anything that we don't want to change. And, right. and you've got to make it clear that you've got to have an integration because otherwise you'll never get to one and one equaling three. You'll have one plus Correct. one, it'll be 1.75. And so you better talk those things in, in advance. And that's part of the due diligence process is to get to understand what the other parties want, who they are, and what has made them successful. And can you figure out how to put things together? You always have to let some time go by. You always have to sort of keep things as they are for a while until you can sort of really pull them together. And hopefully, the other party realizes that there's a whole lot more benefit for them to be taking advantage of the many things that you have, because 
any firm that we're buying is smaller than we are and in general less sophisticated. But on the other hand, we can learn a whole lot from people too. And hopefully we don't stifle them enough that they want to run away. It's very tricky. Right. I can imagine it's very tricky. And at the end of the day, it comes down to compromise, but that's easier said than done, particularly when you're dealing with pride and, and an owner's ego. And as you say, if they want to stick around, that can be tough when you're- and, and Mark, this is an industry of people. Those people basically control or influence those who buy. This is not like buying a bunch of gas stations and you don't care if the people stay or go because you own the real estate. Yeah. In this industry, it's people who have relationships with customers who generate sales. And if they're happy and if they're prospering, they want to stay. If it's awful, then you're going to lose the most important asset that you are acquiring, the people. Yep. Which is a good and bad thing. <laughs> but so you answered the very first question that I asked you when I asked you to tell me a little bit about BTC. And you said, Mark, the first thing I want to tell you about BTC is that they're a family owned business. And I know that in your marketing, in your positioning at Geiger, you talk very proudly and rightly so about your being a family business. Why does that matter about BTC that they're family owned? Well, it comes back to what I just said. They have a family culture. Right. They've employees have been there for 30 and 35 years and more. They're treated in a respectful, uh, you might say family-like way, but essentially they feel good about owners. And so when we're talking about merging two companies, we got a couple cultures that are pretty close. And the more we've talked to them, the yep. more we realize that value-wise, thinking-wise, they think like we do. Right. And that gets you a long way toward making this work successfully. Right. Have you seen that not necessarily being the case with a non-family-owned business? Or have you just felt it's easier to focus on businesses that are family-owned versus those that aren't? Well, most distributors in our industry in the United States are basically family-owned. But if we were buying a company that was owned by a private equity firm or something like that, or if they had an owner who had different values than we did, yep. then we'd have a problem. Right. But you got to make sure that the family business culture is one that is seemingly close to your own. Right. Well, and at the end of the day, you have woven that into your company culture. I think you've woven it into your marketing. I think you've woven it into the story that you tell your customers. And it's provided a point of differentiation. It's a nice segue into the concept of private equity because noting that there are a number of your key competitors in the US that are private equity owned. It's just a different structure altogether. And when you look at Geiger, you're able to say that you're family owned and there's benefits that accrue from that. So I, I just think that's interesting. So here's my question. Private equity is something that a lot of your competitors have used as fuel for their acquisition strategy and noting that Geiger is not private equity controlled, it's family controlled. Can you talk to me a little bit about the self-financing route and the advantages or maybe disadvantages that it's given you over the years? It is an interesting trend, isn't it? In the last 10 years or so, we've seen private equity discover this industry and discover it gleefully because it's fragmented. And I think we're seeing a permanent change in our industry. And they have some major advantage. They got unlimited buckets of money 
And if they can figure out how to buy and put things together, they can have no limit in terms of what they can do. In terms of those firms, their aim is pretty clear. Um, They want to buy a company. They want to stuff money into it and expertise and people and grow the value and then sell it in, let's say, five years. So we've got a challenge because we don't have unlimited buckets of money, even though in our company, we don't take money out. We leave the money in, but we are at a disadvantage in some respects. On the other hand, we've got, as you just said, I think a pretty good story to tell. And when you talk to our employees, associates, and our salespeople, I think we have a very strong sense of culture, of of trust, of loyalty, of teamwork. And there's a lot of benefits when everyone is, or nearly everyone, is working together for common good. And besides that, I don't want to work in another environment. I don't want to work for some other owner and have my life be primarily figuring out how to grow sales and grow earnings. I like the idea of our company being managed for the benefit of everyone who's part of it, all the stakeholders. And we also have the luxury of being a company that gives back to our community and is a good corporate citizen and the community being both this local community and our industry. We want to do that. And at some point in the future, maybe that formula won't work anymore, but it's worked so far for 140 years, and I'm hoping we can figure out how to keep it going. Well, I mean, it's clear that it's worked for you, and I think it's great that you're sticking with it. And it's not like I'm suggesting that one model is necessarily better than the other because it's just a different way of doing business. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with either one. And private equity people are smart people. They know what they're doing, and sometimes they make mistakes, but other times they don't. And it can be a very successful way of growing a business. You know what's interesting? I'll just make this observation. You think about it on the distributor side and the supplier side. If you think about family-owned business in one court and private equity in another court, it's almost like you've got this like equal weight between the two. So here's my point. So in the distributor side, you've got Geiger, large distributor in the US, as we've just talked about, family-owned. And then you've got other large distributors like AIA and Halo are probably two notable examples that are private equity controlled and of both equal size, okay? Sort of weight, counterweight. Then on the supplier side, if you look at some of the biggest industry suppliers that we have, you've got Sanmar, again, a family controlled company, and then its big competitor, Alpha, which is around the same size, if not maybe a little bit bigger. That's private equity controlled. And it's, it's interesting. And all those companies that I just mentioned are excellent, well-run, well-loved companies within the industry. It's just some of them happen to be controlled by family and others happen to be controlled by outside investors. It's more just an observation, but I don't know if there's something interesting there or if it maybe suggests that both thrive. The jury is out because the industry is changing so rapidly, Mark, that we don't know how it's going to play. And you don't know if the family model is going to be surpassed by public companies or by right. private equity. Look at 4imprint. There have been a dynamo growing. Look, Halo has done a hell of a job growing its franchises. And on the supplier side, yeah, you've got some family businesses in there. I, I, I presume Hit is still exclusively right. family-owned. But you've got Alpha, who picks up Prime. Their intention is to now take their $100 million hard goods thing and make it $500 yeah. million or a billion. And you've got Polyconcept. And 
whatever their goals are, they're at X right now. They intend to be two times X in three or four years. And it goes on and on. And Beck, of course, is now owned by an outside firm. And so we'll see what happens in the next few years. But when your models are totally changing and the e-commerce is going in one direction and programs is going in another direction, how is it going to play out? And then, of course, Amazon and Walmart and others are going to jump in right. to the fray, Vistaprint. We don't know. And I would just say that it's making me sweat a bit. And I hope that we can be reasonably smart and not make too many mistakes. But it's going to get, I think, for most everybody, harder and harder to prosper. Now, Gene, it wouldn't be a Promo Kitchen podcast if we didn't ask the question about the threat of Amazon. What do you think about Amazon and its potential entrance into our industry? I mean, they already operate in here to some extent, but not to the extent they could. Is that something that keeps you up at night or is the Geiger model well positioned to deal with any Amazon attack? Well, who would be so foolish as to say they could fend off Amazon? Wherever they've gone, they have bludgeoned people and they're secretive. So you don't know what they're up to. They've got, as of what, yesterday or today, they surpassed Alphabet as the second most valuable company in the US market or maybe on earth. They're just behind Apple now. So they got more resources than anybody has. Yep. Oh, and the other thing, the other thing is, is clearly Amazon is getting really active in the market. I heard the other day from two different sources that Amazon is talking to suppliers about procuring product from them. Yep. Now, what they're going to do with that product, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to just put initials on something or other, or if they're going to be a marketplace for suppliers to sell their goods and to bypass distributors. Yep. I have no idea. And probably Amazon doesn't know. Other than when Amazon gets going on something, they don't stop until they hit an absolute brick wall or they roll over everybody. And so they're going to be showing up. And the question for all of us is, how do we add value in a way that is different and better and appropriate for our customers than will Amazon, regardless of what Amazon chooses on doing? Right. And there's not a person on this podcast who's listening right now that hasn't bought something from Amazon in the last month. And it's just so easy. Yep. And when you make things really easy, you don't even have to have the lowest price. Yep. People just go that way. Yep. And so we sure as heck better be easy and we better be knowledgeable and a whole lot of other things that Amazon can't as easily be. Absolutely. No, I think that's a great observation. I mean, you look at even the buying experience on 4imprint right now. They do an excellent job. It's an easy transaction. Customer service is great. And I think that that's just giving you a precursor to what buying promotional products in an Amazon world could be like. But as you say, 4imprint has a, a decent size of the market, but there's still a large, large part of the market that I think values other things. And I think it's important to focus on the things that Amazon is not optimized for. And I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But it sounds to me, if I'm reading between the lines, that, well, I'm not even reading between the lines here. I know enough about the Geiger model in that you've got your Crestline model where you're focused on the e-commerce side. That's your, your Amazon, so to speak. And then you've got your, right. your people business. You've got your program right. business. You've got your creative business. And at the end of the day, maybe one of those business lines gets killed in the next five years because of an Amazon. But your insurance policy is that you then double down in these other parts of the business that are not focused on Amazon. So I think you've positioned yourself very well. And now you've got this global acquisition. I tell you, Jeff Bezos should be worried about you, not the other way around. <laughs> Let me just say this. You can either say we're really smart because we've got our hands in different aspects of the market, or you can say 
that we're so split doing so many different things, we're not doing anything really well. You could argue either way on that one, Mark, but you're basically right. We're trying to position ourselves to serve different areas of the market and to be a survivor and to somehow figure out how to do it differently and for our customers better than for imprint or Amazon or Walmart, who, by the way, we're seeing buying up a lot of AdWords online and we can see they're nudging their noses into the e-commerce side of this business. Right. And I think in the case of Walmart, I think from what I understand, it's not Walmart directly, but an actual distributor that has gone and done a licensing deal with them. But at the same time, it's still leveraging their brand. Well, who knows what the arrangement is? Maybe it's purely licensing, but I would say that Walmart is not going to outsource their promotional business long-term if it's successful. Correct. No, and I think that by all accounts, this is probably a good testing ground, but at the end of the day, if they're able to validate it, then we'll see what happens. So I think that, I mean, clearly this is the subject of a whole other discussion, but I think it's, to me, well, it's low-grade scary. I think that it's more exciting and shows the dynamism of the promotional products market and the dynamism and the range of customers and the range of customer needs. Because if you look at the market now and you look at the different types of service offerings and the different types of customers and the different types of products that are being offered now than even 10 years ago, it's almost like a completely different business. And it's exciting. I think it's exciting for the people that are forward thinking and embrace that change and roll with it as opposed to the ones that are clinging on to the legacy. Well, I mean, you make a very good point, but I I will say this. Clearly, there's great innovation and dynamism going on. And if you can be a change agent, and if you can be creative and innovative, you can get your share or more than your share. But if you look at the total industry numbers for several years now, there is not huge organic growth going on. The pie is expanding in a small, relatively small way or modest way. And so the people that are taking big chunks out of it are taking chunks out of someone who's losing it. Which is not good for the guy who's losing it, but it's <laughs> at the end of the day, maybe it's celebrating the person who is bringing about the innovation. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So Gene, I always like to give the guest on these programs the opportunity for the last word. Is there something that you would like to leave the esteemed Promo Kitchen community? Any sage words of advice that you have in closing? Well, who? <laughs> my goodness, Mark. Putting you on the spot, I know, but that, that's my style. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know even what to say other than what comes to immediately to my mind, given what we've just talked about, is the Andy Grove comment or quote about only the paranoid survive. So I guess we better be optimistic and smart and purposeful, but we better be somewhat paranoid because someone's going to be gaining on us if we're just sitting there enjoying what we're doing and not moving forward in some direction. Yeah. I think that's a great way to close things. And I think at the end of the day, you have clearly demonstrated that you have that commitment to change Geiger. I mean, if there's any company that could rest on its laurels, it would be a company like Geiger. You've been around for over a hundred years. You're a sizable company. You've been comfortable for a long time. There's a lot of people, Gene, that if they were in your situation, I think may be resting a lot more on their laurels than you are. And I know you've got a great team and I know you're going to deflect any compliment here, but at the end of the day, I think that's really interesting 
that a company like yours continues to push the envelope in this acquisition is a great example of this. And a lot of companies may have said that they're not interested. Well, thank you, Mark, for that. I guess I would just say, for me and my mentality is that this business is not my business. This business is our business, all the Geiger associates and the sales partners that are associated with us. And my job is to do the very best I can to keep it going because there are seven or 800 families that earn a living yep. from the work that we collectively do. And so, yeah, it would be not very hard for me to sell this company and be out of it and have no more issues or problems. But our attitude is we are a team, we're Geiger Nation, we're working together, and my obligation is to do the very best I can to make this company work for everyone who earns a living from it. Right. Well, that's great. We should be very proud of that. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.